You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's guest of honor, Damon Galgut. My name is Susanne Karutza, and I am CEO here at the House of Literature. Damon Galgut, novel The Promise, tells the story of a family and that of a country through the last 40 years following a slow decline. By taking us into the lives of the various members of the Swart family, Galgut also shows us the recent history of South Africa. It is a brilliantly crafted and stylistically impressive book, moving the reader as much as the story moves between stark reality and sarcasm and exploring issues such as grief and family, betrayal and empathy. Damon Galgut published his first novel at the age of 17, and he has since written a number of award-winning novels and plays. For The Promise, he won the prestigious 2021 Booker Prize, making him the third ever South African to do so. He will be joined on stage tonight by our own Nusis Bakwa, who besides her job here at the House of Literature is a social scientist and acclaimed performer and artist. She also recently won a Hedda Award for her performance, Mother of a Nation, about her life straddling Norway and South Africa and of the lives of her mother and grandmother. I have been looking so much forward to this conversation. Please help me give them both a warm welcome. Hi, everyone. Okay, Damon. Welcome. Thank you. Did you arrive in Oslo today? I did. I How did. was your trip in? Everything fine? Yeah. <laughs> Have you been here before? Like when I was a teenager. Okay. Uh, my, my, my grandfather had an obsession with Scandinavia and he brought me here on two holidays. So. Amazing. Mm. Um, I'm going to start with two disclaimers. Damon. Uh, the one is, I'm going to be looking down sometimes while you speak because time is not my friend. I'm not a good timekeeper, so I don't mean to be rude no if I'm looking down. My second disclaimer is that I wasn't exactly excited to read this book. I'm going to be honest. It's not that I directly avoid reading award-winning books from internationally celebrated authors from my other home. I only indirectly avoid them. Um, it's because I knew that the issues that are broached and taken up in, in this book would hit too close for comfort. I knew that they would remind me of all the open wounds and unanswered questions. And what I didn't expect when I was going to start reading The Promise was how funny it is. <laughs> it's hilarious. And how the detailed descriptions of the landscapes and the depth and the details of these white characters, the language of skellums and squiff things and copies and tea and rusks, <laughs> that all those things would feel not only familiar but like a warm welcome and that they would make me feel at ease whilst reading about really uncomfortable things. Um, and 
yeah, reading a book dealing with very uncomfortable topics. So thank you for that, for the somewhat lightness that exists in a quite heavy, heavy book. Well, yeah, thanks for voicing that because mm. it's, it's honest and, uh, yeah, well, I appreciate it in a number of ways which maybe we can get into. I feel like I know the Swartz. Mm. I feel like I've met them, mm. you know. I feel like I, I've met some version of almost all the characters in your book. I also uh, once uh, backpacked at the Dominia's house with my mother. <laughs> so there were many uh, very familiar aspects. But let's get into it, Damon. I, I would like to ask you to read something. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's a short passage. It's pretty early on in the book. It's already on page six. Um, okay, let me just be clear, because it's, it's the arrival. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They park in the driveway under the awning with its beautiful green and purple and orange stripes. Beyond it, a diorama of white South Africa, the tin-roofed suburban bungalow made of reddish face brick, surrounded by a moat of bleached garden, jungle gym looking lonely on a big brown lawn, concrete bird bath, a Wendy house, and a swing made from half a truck tire, where you perhaps also grew up, where all of it began. I was struck by two things in this passage. The one was this very beautiful and familiar description of a typical white South African kind of farm-esque uh, scenario. And the second thing was the sentence where you perhaps also grew up. Who were you writing this novel for? Did you have a specific kind of reader in mind? Not necessarily. Um, I don't. I don't. I guess I don't work with that concrete um, a destination in my in my head. But my sense in writing the book was that um, I mean, as you, as you've already pointed out, it's a very South African novel. I let my South Africanness hang out, and there was a conscious decision involved in that because I grew up reading European novels with all sorts of European references that assumed I would understand how to speak French or, you know, and I, d I didn't, and I, d I didn't get those reference points, but, and, and, and I guess, you know, part of the South African psyche feels it needs to explain itself and translate itself, and this time I just, I don't know, one of the virtues of growing older is that you cease to care about what other people think of you, so it's probably the only good thing to be said for getting older. <laughs> But I sort of used it to good effect in this case because I thought, okay, just once, I'm going to make South Africa the center of the universe. I'm mm. going to speak like a South African, like we speak. Mm. My reference points are local, and we are at the middle of the universe right now. And um, in that sense, I guess, the narrator was addressing another South African mm. where you perhaps also grew up. Perhaps, not necessarily. I really do love that about the language, that there's so many things that you write and describe without explaining what they are. Because I'm so used to writers outside of the European-American lens feeling exactly what you're saying, right. the need to then, you know, have a bit of a disclaimer. And yeah. it's a copy. A copy is a copy. And right. if you don't know what a copy is, you have to Google it. Right. Which yes. feels quite empowering as a South African reading the book and knowing then yeah. what these references are. But we can't assume that everyone here has read the book. 
So I would like you to describe what the overarching storyline is. And please, without spoilers, because I've heard very many interviews with you now, and in one you actually managed to reveal the end <laughs> of the book. So just don't do that now, please. Sorry. Um, I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, it, it, essentially, the book is the story of a white South African family called the Swats who live on what they think of as a farm but is actually just a kind of patchwork of um, small holdings put together outside Pretoria, where I also grew up. Um, but the story of the family is told in what I hope is an unusual way. It's, it's the first thing that attracted me, really, to writing this book. Um, through the device of four family funerals, um, it's got very little plot to speak of. It's, it's not a plot of a novel. It's, but what you see and learn about the family, you see in four windows. And the window opens for a space of maybe a day or two days in separate decades. And what you pick up um, is what you pick up through that window. And really, um, part, of, part of what drew me to this was what's not being said um, in the many years between the openings of these windows, because as the reader, you have to imaginatively join the dots. So is that, is that, is that sufficiently scanty for you? It's sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> scanty and scandy. We're minimalists here. Um, how, uh, how would you describe the Swat family? I wanted to write... Um, I mean, it, you know, there are... It's important that they're a white South African family because, as you know, we're a very racially polarized society. Um, and it's about, essentially, white South Africa, uh, the psyche of white South Africa, if there's an entity like that. But I didn't want to make them either, like, hardcore right-wing racists because, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a whole separate thing. It's also been done to death, right? Mm. But I also didn't want to make them sort of exemplary left-wing open mm. thinkers mm. because I don't know too many of those people, and <laughs> and um, it's also it's, it's also it's a it's a different deal, right? Mm. So they were they're not unlike my family, which is to say mm. they're kind of middle of the road. They're not really ideologically invested in anything, but they're pretty comfortable with the apartheid setup, mm. um, and. You know, they're not deep questioners. They just want to live their lives, but they don't mind the fact that actually history has given them a very comfortable perch. Hmm. Would you say this is kind of autobiographical? No, I mean, no. The, fa the family is not my family, but it's autobiographical in the sense that, um, well, you said earlier, you know these people. I know mm. these people too. I mean, mm. uh, they're fragments from all over, from my childhood, but these mm. are all people... Um, who incidentally, I think, for readers outside South Africa, might come across as a sort of carnival of grotesques. Mm. But if you grew up in Pretoria at that time, that's how they were. And they kind of still are when I go back to visit my mom. Um, mm. some, of those, some of the cast is still saying their lines there. <laughs> and how did you decide which four decades you felt were pertinent of South African history to, to kind of situate these four decades around? Um, you know, well, f first I was kind of drawn to the idea of this being an unusual way to tell a family story. I've read a lot of family sagas, but I haven't read one that's structured in this particular right. way. So 
my initial impulse was really not to take account of South Africa. Uh, it was just, okay, what could I say about how these people have changed and their lives have changed over, you know, over mm -hmm. time? And then I realized that if you, if you actually were specific about different decades and, and you spaced the funerals out, that you could write about more than just the life of individuals. You could write about the life of the nation. And, you know, it's not a secret. South Africa's been through some very dramatic changes mm -hmm. in, in the last 30 years. Um, I mean, the, the years that the book covers happen to be the years of my adult life. So um, they're the years that I have felt most intensely and mm -hmm. um, that I know best. There was not a lot of research required. No research, actually, except the, you know, lived experience. Okay, I want to go back into the thing about the, the no uh, research and the lived experience, but we, I, I still want to kind of uh, outline or sketch out the frame and the form of the book because it's also, um, I don't know if it's unique, but it's deeply interesting. It really does something to read the book in the way that you've, write, you've written it and the style that you've chosen, also because the narrator's voice, for example, jumps a lot from first person to third person, in a des uh, descriptive uh, paragraph, you can suddenly stop and go, oh, no, wait a minute, that piece of paper that that character was holding actually isn't there mm. because it's too soon. It couldn't possibly have been there. Could you say something about the, the form and the style that you decided to, to go with? Yeah. Um, it kind of came about through a, a happy accident. Um, I say that, but I think, you know, as a, uh, as a writer, you tend to... Um, there aren't happy accidents in the sense that you you obviously you you have a problem and you reach for a solution to the mm. problem, so you're you're more alert and aware to what life's offering you as possible solutions. And in the case of this book, um, I'd started writing it. I'd done maybe I don't know twenty thousand words of it or so, um, but I was very frustrated. And I got offered the chance to do a couple of drafts of a film script. Um, and I, I took the job, and I sort of left my book for eight months or so. But the experience of writing the film script gave me a whole other mode of narration. Mm. Um, because film, you know, the priorities of film are visual. Mm. Um, you have to think about the story through a camera. Mm. And when I came back to the book, I mm. suddenly saw that if I, if I approached it narratively through a camera, so mm. to speak that it opened up a whole range of other possibilities, vocal possibilities, with, with voices and perspectives um, and tones, emotional, an emotional range that the book had lacked until mm. then. Um, but your question specifically sort of fo uh, touches on the fact that the, the, the narrative calls itself into question, that mm. it, it will assert something and then say, well, no, that's not possible, and, right. and so on. So that comes out of something quite specific, which, which, which is, um, you know, as a writer, I, I continually bump my head against something which doesn't seem to bother most other people. <laughs> the fact that... Isn't that why writers become writers? Maybe. maybe. <laughs> there are multiple psychot mm. psychotic explanations. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> the, I'm, I'm continually bothered by the fact that a novel, fiction, mm. is a lie. You know, I, you're, you're trying to persuade people that once upon a time in a faraway land there was a princess living in a tower and this happened. But none of that's true. But the only way 
that a novel succeeds is by persuading people that this really happened. And you use a whole bunch of tricks to, to do that. But the, the tricks bother me. I feel dishonest. Mm. All stories are told by somebody to somebody else. So, you know, you can't, you can't use a, um, this narrative technique, which is cinematic, jump, jumping around in this way, without the reader being aware that this is artificial. Somebody is doing the jumping, right? right? So I thought instead of trying to cover that up, let me embrace it and, and heighten the fact that this is an artificial exercise. So, you know, there are several points where I let, I let the narrator state something and then say, but yeah, maybe it's not like that, mm. maybe it is like this, or change his or her mind and, you know, adjust the detail and mm. so on. So, um, you know, along, along with all the other South African voices in the book, the, the voice of the narrator, I hope, is quite distinctive. Yeah. But is there only one narrator? Because it feels like there are very many voices. Yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, I, I'd like to leave that open. You know, and p part of that is, is the fact that if you're writing a book, you, you, you don't just do it overnight. I mean, mm. you're invested in this relationship, really, mm. for, in this case, three years or more. Mm. Um, and you're not the same person every day when mm. you're writing. So actually the narrative persona that you go into, because it's never actually you, it's a version of you, is not quite the same. So mm. I thought, well, instead of again trying to smooth that over and cover it, let me heighten the fact that there are perhaps multiple um, personas speaking this. And sometimes the narrator will address the reader directly, which made me feel almost responsible for whatever was going to unfold Right. In, in that particular part of the story. And at some point, I remember trying to place myself then in a white South African's shoes just because I was, I feel like so much of the way in which the story is written is somehow not forcing, but trying to create a context for which South, white South Africans in particular perhaps can ask some questions about responsibility or about feeling responsible for how South Africa politically has unfolded for the last 40 years? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the narrator is, is almost a, not quite a participant, but definitely present through, the, through all the scenes that unfold here mm. and commenting on it and, um, you know, commenting on the characters and, you know, sometimes in quite a cruel way, sometimes mm. in quite an intimate way. Mm. But... One of the um, voices that this narrator adopts, you're quite right, is, 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 a, is a voice that directly addresses the reader at certain, certain crucial moments. I don't know why this is absent from most novels because, in fact, a novel is an address from somebody else mm. to, to you. Mm. And I don't like the illusion that the, that the reader is passive in this process mm. because you have responses, you have... Um, I mean, you may, you may be complicit in, in this mm. action. I mean, as white South Africans are complicit in their own history. So mm. it was a way of, um, yeah, ex expanding the range of voices and, and making the reader almost a participant as well at cer mm. certain moments. There's something about the way in which you write Salome and the way you're so clear about how she's so visibly invisible and how this 
is also reminiscent of how I remember the black cleaning ladies back home. Uh, and there's this very kind of like enduring, kind, patronizing uh, way that, you know, families that have housekeepers that have been with them forever talk about the house cleaners. Oh, you know, she's been with us forever and she's like one of the family and yet, you know, it's the girl, it's the cleaner. It, she often doesn't have a name. Um, and there's something so simultaneously brutal and political about the way in which you write Salome, because she is, in one part, a driver of at least one really important part of the story, which is that there is a promise, that there is land that is going to be given to her when people pass on. And yet, even though she's a driver, we never get to know her. We don't get to know her inner life, her inner universe, who she is, what she thinks, can you speak a bit on why you chose to write Salome in this way? Mm. I mean, I don't need to tell you, but m maybe I need to tell other people. I mean, it's it's absolutely normal in South Africa. I'm sorry, this is a subject that gets me emotional, as gets us both emotional, I guess. Um, it's absolutely normal in South Africa for white families to have uh, at least one black servant working for them. Um, Often a, a woman who, who comes from somewhere else and has left her own children behind in order to look at, after the children of a white family. And this was true for me and my family too. I mean, we, we had a, a nanny um, called Salome, which is why I've used, mm. used the name. I mean, classically in Europe it would be Salome, I realize, mm. but in South Africa we squash it. Um, and it, I, I loved her. Um, in, in the way you do as a child because you're receiving affection. I had no concept of the political forces that had brought her to our house and put her in this position. And I, she loved me too. I mean, there's, mm. there's a kind of a um, maternal thing that, hap that happens. And yet, as, as, mm. as you know, you've expressed, we... There's great distance and there's great intimacy. It's, it's, a, it's a peculiar thing in the middle of this absolutely cold and alienating system that there are these strange human bonds that are not strong. I mean, Salome left our employ. My parents, of course, didn't keep any record. I have no idea if she's still alive even. Um, but I remember her in the way that you remember somebody <coughs> close to you from your, your early years. I wanted to write, um, because, because the book is about white South Africa and white South Africans, I wanted to present their worldview. And it's a horrible, ugly fact about white South Africa that it does not imaginatively inhabit the inner lives of fellow black South Africans in the way that it would with other white South Africans. So. It's absolutely normal that you would have this person washing your underwear, cleaning the mm. floor, looking after your children, and you'd know nothing about this person or how she feels or what she thinks. It's a blank place on the map, and I wanted to make that blank place on the map a blank place at the heart of my book. Mm. So I did not go there deliberately. I kind of filled in all the space around her. Um, 
This is not to ignore her existence, quite the opposite, because a number of commentators have picked up on this and have, have found it problematic. And it's, it's interesting to me that all those commentators are from outside South Africa. Mm. Nobody inside the country has any doubt about why that choice was made, mm. um, particularly black South Africans. Mm. Mm. But outside commentators feel or, or seem to feel that I have failed in a literary duty because if you write a bunch of characters, you need to give each of them their due and their weight and so on. But what do you achieve by going through those gestures in the mm. case of somebody like Salome? It seems to me that what you're doing is reassuring your readers mm. that justice has been done. Mm. Mm. And, okay, we've dealt with Salome. It's a great pity that in the real world she still has no voice. But in, in the book she has one, mm. so we can close the book and we can close that problem. I would rather leave you with a problem because in the real world it is a problem. We're nearly 30 years into democracy and there are millions of women like Salome who have no voice, no agency, no presence who still continue to do this sort of job. So essentially, I wanted to make a real-life problem into a literary problem in the hope that people would carry it around with them and perhaps, perhaps in the real world find a solution of their own. And there's something, when you describe this relationship that you... The idea that white South Africans and their black... Uh, workers have an intimate and yet disconnected relationship. I feel like that's also reflected in the familial relationships of the Swarts, that they are intimately connected through blood and yet there's this, you know, dissonance. There is like a disconnect because this open wound at the center of your book, it just kind of seeps into all the relationships. It's not just in the erasure of Salome, it's also in the erasure of something honest, because, you know, this promise mm. kind of mm. hangs like a dark cloud, even if it's not at the center, at the forefront of people's consciousness through these 40 years, it's there. Mm. I mean, the, the actual idea of, of that thread of the story, the, the, promise, the, the, the promise of land and this broken down house being given to her, I'd already started writing the book and dealing with the family, but in a conversation with a, a different friend, um, he, he expressed to me how he had, you know, been vexed for years and years because his mother on her deathbed had, had extracted a promise from his family that they would do exactly this. Oh, wow. And um, the family, in true white South African way, had Didn't not do it. done it. Mm. Um, and it estranged him from his family. So mm. it's one possible discord. But yes, the, the family is extremely dysfunctional. They're at odds with each other. But, you know, what to say, a, a, a system like apartheid, um, it's, a, it's an absolute distortion of the usual values by which humans live, and it creates mm. distorted lives. So mm. it creates distorted personalities. I mean, the book's full of mm. those kinds of people, mm. which is not to say, you know, there are not wholesome families in South Africa, people with good relations and so on, um, just not writing about those people. Mm. And... Uh, you know, on a, on a purely literary level, if I, if I detach morality from it, it's always more interesting to write about messed up people than mm -hmm. it is about, you know, well-adjusted people. I mean, they definitely, there is like a sense of, uh, that it's fatalistic, that they're almost all destined to, yeah, that it's fate that ends up leading them to whatever their destination ends up being. Mm. 
um, if you could say something about the agency, I mean, you know, there's such a clear kind of lack of agency or lack of anything uh, around Salome and her son Lucas. But if you could say something about the agency of also, you know, some of the Swart family members, I, f I, I interpret and I read that even in their will, especially Anton's will, fire and fury to kind of... Uh, try and circumvent the the path that he's been going on. It 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 just feels fatalistic somehow. It feels mm. as if there is something, maybe again symbolic, in how these overarching issues, be it a promise or the political landscape, somehow just. Mm. I mean, I, g I guess that sense of inevitability is is a byproduct, really, of the narrative voice in a way. Right. Um, the narrator seems to know you know, what's coming, what's supposed to come, what isn't, and so on. But of course, you know, on a, on a more immediate level, um, white South Africans are far more, um, or at least feel themselves to be agents um, of power in their own lives far more than maybe black South Africans would. Mm. Um, so, yes, it, it's not strange that a character like Anton, who's more or less my contemporary, would feel, certainly at the beginning of the book, that the future is his, right? Mm. I mean, he's born to power and privilege. It's, it's, the whole system is there to serve it up to him. And really, that's not what happens um, as history takes away his, what he feels is his due. Um, but other characters also feel entitled. Uh, Astrid, the middle sister, feels entitled to all sorts of things, which maybe someone in a different sort of society would not. Um, Amor is the only person, the younger sister, who has some kind of moral impulse, certainly feels that the promise should be fulfilled. But her, her dilemma is different. I mean, um, if, you, if you are born into power and privilege because of your race, and you don't want those things, I mean, where, where, where do you go and hand them in? You know, how, how do you give it up? You, you can't shed your class or your race. Uh, they're, they're part of your fate. Um, not just in South Africa, actually. Mm. So she, her solution, which is probably not a, you know, a, a great solution, but it's the only one she can find, is really just to, to distance herself from her family and to renounce her inheritance um, and, and to work in some way to try and repair the damage of the world. Beyond that, you can't change your identity. We're all given an identity, and it tends to shape who we are and our future and, and everything. Um, and it's foolish to pretend that your, you know, your race and your class are separate from your, your destiny. They aren't. But, I mean, what's the alternative? If you are a conscious uh, white South African who wants to be a part of some sort of constructive conversation towards where it is that South Africa should be going. I mean, what do you do with that power and that privilege and with the history being what it has been? You tell me. because <laughs> I, I <laughs> Oh, I just... Uh, <laughs> let me get my notes. <laughs> I've been waiting for that moment. I, you know, I mean, I don't know. Perhaps we, perhaps we diverge on this point, but I, it seems to me... If, you, if you're going to look for solutions as an individual, you're going to be limited to gestures like Amor's, which are right. probably, you know, um, small. 
the solutions to South Africa's problems have to be state-driven solutions. Right. And it's unfortunately on that level that we lack vision, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wanted to have you read uh, just another little small excerpt to, to somehow try and close off this conversation about the characters before we have to move on, Damon. Okay. So this is page 278, 278. Notes to self. Should I again set the scene or... You want me to launch right in? It's okay. Set the scene. I, I've gotten used to it now, so it's fine. Well, I'll, I'll do it in a limited way. Sure. Uh, uh, Amor's brother, Anton, is a, is a novelist or would-be novelist, and at a certain point in the, the book, she looks at the novel that he has been writing for a long time and finds notes to self. She picks through some of them at random. South Africans are tone deaf to irony. Impossible in this country to speak for anyone except yourself and even then, at the heart of every South African story is the fugitive. Kill the wizards, exterminate all the brutes. Can you... Uh can you comment? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, Ant Anton's novel, in a way, is a kind of shadow novel of mine. It's, right. it's, it's uh, you know, it's, they're echoes uh, in, in his plans that um, clearly resonate with the, the structure of my book and so on. Um, Except he's, he's got a kind of, uh, he's trying to write a sort of idealized version of his own life, which I guess a lot of first-time novelists do. But his notes to self are all kind of my notes to self in the writing of not only this book, but other books too. And I mean, they're all sort of pertinent to not just the writing of any novel, but the, the specific writing of a South African novel, I guess. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. And when you write then that it's impossible to, to speak for anyone but oneself, have you in any of your books ever tried to write the inner, inner universe of a black person? Or has that felt too far? It's an interesting question because, I mean, in, in, other, in other books that I've written, I've, I've included black characters in, in a more uh, expansive way than, than I have here. Um, and I do, I mean, I, I, I want to just make a general statement that um, I, I am resistant to the new strain of identity politics that, that say you cannot um, imaginatively inhabit a person or a life that's uh, very, very different to yours. Um, I mean, the whole basis of fiction is imagining being people who are not you. So... You know, um, I, 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 I defend the right of authors to imaginatively go wherever they want to go. On the other hand, it is foolish to imagine experience that is so far removed from your own that really your imagination is going to fail you. Mm. And unfortunately, it's a fact about South Africa that we are, racially speaking, so divided from one another that that is, un that is true. It, it's very hard as a white South African to know, essentially, 
what the experience of being a black person in South Africa is and what that might involve. I, I might research it and understand the facts, but I will not viscerally, experientially understand that from the inside. So there are limits to what I feel I can authentically convey. But I'm not refraining from it because I feel I'm not allowed to, if I, if I can make that distinction. Yeah. And how has this book been received by black South Africa as opposed to white South Africa, would you say? I mean, my um, conversations um, with, uh, with South Africans of, of all racial backgrounds is, is somewhat limited. I don't generally, you know, I'm not on social media. I don't, I don't enter into those sorts of dialogues. And I was afraid when the book came out mm. of how people would respond. I mean, in, in all sorts of ways, primarily how white South Africans would respond because it's pretty harsh on them. Um, but the feedback I have got, limited though it that may be, has been incredibly warm, mm. actually, and, and really supportive. Um, the, the black South Africans I've interacted with seem to have got it in, in, mm. in far more um, uh, comprehensive a way than, than some of the white South Africans. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly don't want to claim that's universal. I can't, I can't, I can't say. But, but there's been a certain defensiveness on the part of white South Africans, which clearly doesn't apply to, you know, uh, black readers. Mm. I should also add, I guess, that um, the kind of people who, who might really be angered by the book are also not likely to be the people who read the book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or read Isn't any that books, how it always is? Matter, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you did mention briefly earlier about the international readership being offended, I guess, on some part on uh, the invisibility of Salome, and, and yet perhaps a black South African can read into, let me not generalize, I feel like it's so brutally honest. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the brutality of it is friggin' brave because it really doesn't shy away from what is not just the lived experience of a particular black class, but also then a black observer of, of the interaction. And I mean, I, can't, I came back to South Africa post-94, so I came with the baggage of social democracy and very disguised racism <laughs> uh, and uh, political processes and political institutions that work and function and so on and so forth. So coming back, one thing is talking about South Africa from kind of like a politically, a socioeconomic political structure. And another thing is these relationships, these very intimate relationships that you have to deal with. Mm. Uh, and your observation of them just, it rings so true. So I'm not surprised when you say that black South Africa has kind of read and understood something in that book because it's just written in such uh, elegant brutality, well, which I think is also South Africa. Well, I mean, thank you. I, I, um, I, I mean, I really value that. Thank you. I, I, I write from a... Uh, position of great discomfort, clearly, where, where that's concerned. I mean, uh, the figure of Salome is absolutely familiar to me, not from over there, but from inside my home. I mean, yeah. the, these, these were people I remembered and recognized and felt for without, uh, being, without having a language to express it. But of course, of course, as a white South African, I'm as complicit as any other white South African in that mm. 
vastly unbalanced power structure and have played my part in it too. So, I mean, I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how to, how to say it except, except to say that um, there's, I, I would hope that a feeling of um, empathy and, and compassion across a great distance and across a great silence would be implied in some of these scenes. It absolutely is. Okay, so I heard you say in an interview, and I quote, it's kind of reductive to talk about the overarching storyline as white South Africans dealing with apartheid. It covers a 40-year period from the 80s right around to the time of Jacob Zuma's resignation. And the politics is only one strand of the story. The main focus for me was the family. What is happening with the country is very much in the background, but part of the texture of the book. Damon, what are your thoughts about the quite politicized reception of the book that even though this is a family saga, mm. perhaps first and foremost, the politics of the nation gets pulled to the forefront? I, uh, you know, South Africa's... It's <laughs> it, it happens all the time, right? Yeah. So there's just no escape from politics or, or what I think of rather as history in, in South Africa. Yeah. Um, there's a line of William Faulkner's that I'm fond of, which is the past isn't past yet. Um, I guess our recent history is so turbulent and so strong that it defines us in, in, in ways that perhaps other literatures have escaped. So, yeah, it's almost inevitable that, I you know, uh, you give a book the title like The Promise, which is refers to this particular incident, and, you know, um, clearly the racial tensions are sort of present, that that would seem to be the foreground when, for me, <laughs> it was the background. I mean, not, not insignificant, but the background. Mm. Um, you know, really, the... the, the I, I like the the idea of a of a, a buried theme, uh, maybe not so overt theme that that a writer um, has for them themselves in their writing a book. Mm. And for me, time and the passage of time it's it's a personal preoccupation because I'm, you know, nearly thirty now. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> mortality is on my mind a great deal. Mm. The the I look I look back on what is clearly the larger part of my life um, already lived. And I've been through changes. I mean, everybody does. Um, you know, your body, your values, your face, your, your experience, all, all of that changes through time. And I, um, I sort of see it as, the, in some ways, the only subject worth thinking about. Uh, of course, the end of that journey for each of us is a funeral, so the funerals are pertinent in that, in that sense. Um, and I try to build it into the fabric of the book in, in, in that um, if you look at the world through that very wide lens, time, mm. there, is, there isn't one story, there is no center to anything, and Everybody, everything, every every creature um, can occupy center stage. You know, 
there's everywhere and nowhere at the same time, if I put it that way. So the focus of this book drifts from the family to quite arbitrary side characters a lot of the time, mm. sometimes to animals. I mean, the two jackals mm -hmm. that, that come center stage and so on. And I, I wanted to convey the sense that actually mm. these are multiple stories um, and that you could almost drift off with the jackals and, and follow some other line of, of action. The only thing that places the Swat family at the center of the story is the fact that we keep coming back to them. But we also keep, you know, going elsewhere. And, and really that was for me trying to build uh, time itself and the way time works into the DNA of the book. But this great theme seems to have past most people by. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we come back to specifics of history and South African history, so it's a slight frustration. For yeah, me. I can understand that. I mean, mm. I guess in somewhat that's, that's quite inhibiting, maybe, or, mm. or limiting, if always as a South African writer you are then, mm. you know, asked to yeah. assume a position to right. speak on, mm. on the politics rather than the vast landscapes of time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's a thing, right? Because yeah. it really is specifically required of South African writers yeah. and, and not necessarily of, of, of others. I mean, at least yeah. one review picked up on... Because, you know, to escape South Africa, you really have to leave it thematically. So the previous book I, I wrote about E.M. Forster and the writing of A Passage to India because yeah. the words South Africa would not occur anywhere there. Yeah. But I sort of physically had to leave the place in order to leave it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And in, a, in another book, I dealt with travel, um, myself essentially traveling with other people. But again, physically, you have to leave the borders in order to, in order to validly be allowed to write about themes that are not South African. So history has mm. got a very powerful gravity in South Africa. I met a, a, a band from Lebanon, uh, a pop band uh, called Mashru Leila with the uh, lead singer when he was here doing interviews, he really loved uh, AHA and was very inspired by, you know, the synth compositions of AHA. And the only thing they ever asked him about, he was also, he is also a, a homosexual, was uh, how his homosexuality was received in Lebanon and about the war. Mm. And he just wanted to talk about synths. Um, <laughs> but when you speak on this idea of having to travel to remove yourself from South Africa to kind of escape the the uh, the things that South African writers are then forced to speak on, um, it resonated and uh, also touched a soft core, Damon. Because and I'm going to draw while I speak now so that I don't get emotional. But um, I'm born and raised here. My mother came here as a political refugee in 1965. And so what I know for the majority of my life is, is Norway. And then we moved back post-94. We basically watched the democratization process on the TV, and then my mom turned around to us and she said, pack your bags. We're going. And I think it was just after Mandela had announced that all people who had been banned and had their passports taken away from them, were going to be given them back almost immediately. And both my parents had been banned. Um, and so we moved back, and then I live in South Africa for 10 years. Uh, and I come back here, and I am, uh, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I, I, I dabble in writing. 
And I wrote a play recently, um, which I think I wrote because even though I live here and I traveled far away, the issues of South Africa haven't left me. Mm. And they were so ingrained into the very fabric of how I understand myself and how I also don't. Mm. And so I got to a point where I realized I had to write because the only way is through. I couldn't not face all of those open wounds and unanswered questions if I wanted to keep on working creatively. Mm. So I wrote a play about myself and my mother and my grandmother. So also dealing in time, three black women and three different socioeconomic contexts, but all black women sharing a bloodline and dealing with the realities of what that means, being a black woman in South Africa or being a black woman uh, in Norway. So when you, yeah, when you wrote or when you speak about this idea of having to travel, I feel like even in traveling, you know, you can run as far as you want and there you are. Mm. Um, I also say in my play, uh, I write about living in Pretoria. Uh, because I was a very naughty girl, so I was uh, sent, an, a naughty teenager, I was sent to live in boarding school in Pretoria, St. Mary's Diocesan School for Girls. And in my play, I describe Pretoria as one of the most racist cities in the world. Would you say that's a fair description of <laughs> your hometown? Definitely true f um, when I was growing up there, I mean, w without a doubt. Um, I uh, it it was a, you know in the in the sixties seventies and eighties the nerve center of the whole apartheid machine so all that all that thinking was was centered there and and embodied in uniforms that's what I remember about Pretoria military uniforms civil servants uniforms uniform thinking uniform approach to life um, but there is a sequence here where Amor comes back to Pretoria after being away overseas, trying to escape, I guess, for, for a long time. Um, and she comes back and, and what she sees is the city centre is absolutely transformed. So, I mean, when I was growing up, it was, an, it was absolutely white city centre. Mm. And it's now, I mean, what, what Amor in her naive way reflects on, she says, well, it's, it's almost like an African city. <laughs> which it is, of course. But, I mean, Pretoria, to give it its due, it has transformed quite a lot. Mm. Um, in, in, in certain ways, I think, maybe changed more than any other South African city. Mm. Um, I, um, which is not to say it's not a racist city, but mm. there have been transformations. What, what I hear a great deal more these days is that Cape Town is profoundly racist. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I find in the... I almost feel nostalgic about the, the, the very honest and brutal Praetorian version of racism mm. because uh, in Cape Town you have this, uh, it's much more hidden and much more kind of anchored in old money and in segregated areas and there's absolutely no kind of sense of any sort of movement. It's yeah. very much a city that hasn't there's, there's, uh, no, there's no visible transformation no. in the same way that you see in Pretoria. No, not at all. It's a pretentious European city. You can yeah. be in Cape Town and not feel like you're in Africa yeah. at all. Yeah. So, you know, I, my brother has... Um, I have four brothers, four older brothers. I'm the youngest. And uh, my one brother, also in the military, incident, incidentally, like Anton, 
uh, and he had uh, a favorite phrase he would say, you do, you, know, Ciso, what, you, know, you, do you know what the best sound in the world is? And I would be like, children's laughter, the rain, and he's like, it's 10,000 men walking in formation. <laughs> anyway. What he, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. <laughs> whatever floats your boat. Uh, uh, and he had, uh, he had a favorite pastime that he would bring me on to, and that would be to go and uh, play pool. Uh, in very white racist bars in Pretoria and beat the white players there. Uh, and the thing is, you'd have to know once you walked into one of these places whether, you know, you had to run for your life. And if you didn't, you really didn't. Then the context of that didn't change. Whilst yeah. in Cape Town, it's still a variable mm. throughout the evening. But in Pretoria, you'll know in the first three minutes. Do mm. I have to run or am I good? And mm. if I'm good, then I'm good. Mm. Then I'll be invited to your Tani's place for tea. <laughs> The actor um, John Carney, um, in a conversation, said that he would far rather deal with an Afrikaans racist than a white South African liberal, because you you know exactly where you stand with a with a an Afrikaans racist. With a with a white liberal, you don't know. The ground shifts all the time, and what's being said is not actually what's meant. And I mean, yeah, that's yeah. what we're talking about, I guess. Yeah. yeah. We don't have much time left, Damon, so I'm just going to have to scratch, scratch, scratch. Okay, so uh, I think we only have time for one more question. Make it a good one. Ooh, no pressure. <laughs> um, okay, we're just going to jump over the whole Plath novel thing, even though I also really was excited to talk to you about that. And I'm going to ask you, uh, and try to do this without spoiling anything, in, in, a, in a very kind of important part of the book, you suddenly complicate the land issue, the promise, by adding another layer of potential ownership to the land. Why did you do this? I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the, the whole issue of the promise came from a story that a friend was sharing. So that detail was true to that story. Um, that's one part of the answer. The, the other part of it is that um, in, in more ways than that in the book, I, I have tried, and also not just with this book, to push back against um, the very clear lines that a lot of novels often establish that feel to me untrue of the real world. In other words, what's built into a novel is the sense, firstly, that um, issues are resolved. It's, 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 it's expected of a novel. It's part of the satisfaction on, of a novel that whatever the problem is at the heart of the narrative, it will be resolved. That in some in some sense, a moral equilibrium is restored. So bad people are punished, good people are rewarded. You know, there, there are moral actions and immoral actions and so on. I understand on a literary level why those devices please readers. I mean, I can be pleased by them too when I, when I read. But they dissatisfy me in the sense that the real world is far more fraught, far more complicated. My life is full of many more questions than answers. Most of the issues in my life will never be resolved. Mm -hmm. um, I 
see terrible tyrants die peacefully in their sleep and people who mm. lead good lives absolutely unrewarded. Mm. So, you know, while trying to work within established literary traditions and to provide the satisfactions a novel is supposed to provide, I'm also trying to nudge my writing in the direction of the way the real world works. And, there, you know, um, it would, would have been easy to make that particular resolution in the book um, far more conclusive, satisfying. But, you know, as, as with my friend's story, the real world's more complicated. So even, even when things do get sorted, they're not really quite sorted. So. And so the ground underneath these people are shifting constantly and, and there's uncertainty in this question of ownership. And I heard you once say in an interview, Damon, that the idea of belonging mm. in South Africa mm. and connection is almost impossible because it pertains to and connects to the issue of ownership, mm. of land ownership. Mm. I mean, I wanted to almost end by asking, are you South African? But you are in all the good ways, Damon. So that's not my question. I think just to say something about the idea of of land, belonging, identity, and hope somehow. Mm. Even though I know you don't want to end on a hopeful note because perhaps that's not how the real world works, I believe that by manifesting it, it becomes real because we are the real world, no? Is well, that naive? No, we're as real as any other part of it. Um, in an abstract way, you know, um, my mind during the writing of the book kept, kept going to um, Simone Weil, the French philosopher, and, and her book, The Need for Roots. Everybody needs to feel they belong somewhere, right? So um, at the heart of the South African struggle, I mean, the, the heart of the last century of South Africa, is this question, because essentially what the apartheid project was doing was, was making the vast majority of South Africans non-citizens, taking away from them any sense of belonging and giving a fake sense of roots to people who had not earned it. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you that, uh, you know, South African politics now is very much about land and, and who has it, who used to have it, who will have it in the future. But really behind that is, is a much deeper philosophical thing about mm -hmm. how, how do we all come to belong in this country belong in a deep sense, like this is home for us. I don't know if there's a hopeful answer to that. I mean, I, when, when, I, when I feel despair about South Africa, it's, it's, it's generally about what politicians have done. Mm. When I feel hopeful about it, it's about a kind of common sense South African thing, mm. which is cross-cultural, cross-racial, that mm. we know, we know we all want to belong there, all of us. And um, in some sort of human way, I have far more trust in ordinary South Africans than in politicians. So, you know, if I if I if I if I want to look for a hopeful solution to the future, it's it's the fact that we can 
sit and talk to each other in a human way and maybe understand the need for roots. Mm. So I hope we find our way there. But my faith is not in political promises at this point. Damon Galgut, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. And thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.